0: Today, we're going to get the most amazing God-sized miracle in the book of Jonah in chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I would like to encourage you to turn there with me and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen for you to follow along. Let's hear the Word of our God. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word declares that all men are like grass and all our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But your word, O Lord, your word stands forever. And may this be the word that is faithfully preached today. Unless you speak, nothing of any true eternal significance will be spoken here today. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned today we come to the biggest miracle in this book. We come to the the most beautiful portion of this book. And in in this, I want to point out four things. They're in your notes. So if you take notes, if you've got a bulletin, you can follow along. But four things we're going to see about God in this chapter. Four things I want to show you. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3 are mirrors almost word for word of chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3. They almost follow along word for word. It starts off, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. But here's where three differs. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, the second time. Now we don't want to brush past that. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. What we see about God here is we have a God who gives second chances. That's the first thing I want us to see about God here. He's a God who gives second chances. I think that's something we all need to hear. Something we all have experienced. We all, we've mentioned this before, we all run from God. Sometimes it's in big things, sometimes it's in small things. We don't want to obey. We want to do our own way. We want to live how we want to live and we run. But our God is a God who gives second chances. You see, God is not changed. We don't see God giving Jonah a reproach and telling Jonah, why did you disobey? Jonah, you knew you shouldn't have done that. He doesn't say anything. Nothing's recorded here. All we get is that God gives him a second chance. And Jonah, he's changed some, but I don't think his heart's fully changed. We're going to see in this book. He still doesn't like the people he's going to go to. But we'll see Jonah Obey and follow God in this second chance. Now, I think it's something important for us to hear. Jesus' disciples, they come to him in Matthew 18. And they say, Jesus, how often should we forgive somebody? Now, in that culture, typically, if you forgave somebody three times, you were so generous. You've gone above and beyond. So Peter says, seven times? Thinking Jesus will be like, whoa, seven, that's a lot, Peter. Instead, Jesus says, no. I tell you, 70 times 7. And that's not meant to be a math equation. That's meant to say, you forgive, you forgive, and you forgive. You keep on forgiving. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be a people who give second chances, who forgive. That's what God does. And God not only forgives a second chance, but here he gives Jonah a second chance to do correctly what he had done incorrectly. He had ran from God, and God gives him a second chance to go to Nineveh. Sometimes we need to know that God gives second chances. In some of your lives, some parents here today, you feel like you've messed up. Maybe you've made some mistakes. Your relationship with your children, maybe they're grown now, isn't what you would want. Know that our God is a God who gives second chances. Some children, you may look at your parents. Maybe you're a a grown, maybe you're an adult here, and you're going, I don't have a great relationship with my parents. Know that God is a God who gives second chances. To the people we work with, to the people we encounter on a daily basis, God is a God who gives second chances chance after chance after chance. He gives second chances, not only forgiving us, he gives second chances for us to go and do what we've often done wrong. And that's purely his grace. He gives Jonah a second chance here to go and do this. The mission is the same, word for word, nearly nothing changes. And listen to what he calls him to in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Nearly the same words as chapter 1, verse 2. He tells him to go. And God's going to give him the words to say. Jonah doesn't have to worry about it. Arise. This is the great city, Nineveh. Now, we've talked a little bit about this city, Nineveh. Nineveh, at this time, was the most powerful city on earth. Or at least in that part of the world. It was... The capital of the Assyrian people, and the Assyrian people were famous for their cruelty. They had a mighty military that would conquer people, that would torture people, and that would kill and destroy. And then after that, they would tax you into poverty. So everyone, all the other nations, hated the Ninevites. If there was one people you said, they can go and go waste. So they can be departed from God. They can be judged and punished with the worst judgment you can ever imagine. People would say, let that happen to Nineveh. When you approach the city of Nineveh, there is a pyramid made of human skulls. They were saying, don't mess with us. We're a bad people. We're a scary people. We're an evil people. And that's who he calls him to go to, this city that is huge, by standards of the world at this time. This huge city he's to go to. And in verse 3, again, it's just like verse 3 in chapter 1. Jonah arose. That's how they both start. Chapter 1, it says Jonah arose to flee. Here it says Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Jonah rises and he obeys God. He's going to go where God has called him to go, to go to Nineveh. Starts the same way, Jonah rose, but he obeys this time. Nineveh, it's a city that's about 800 kilometers from where he is in Jerusalem. And it would take a month to travel there, even if you're riding on a donkey. So it's a long journey he's going to take, but he arises, steps up, and goes in obedience. And it says, according to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. In verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. This is the message he preaches. 40 days, Nineveh is overturned. This isn't even really an accurate message of turning to God. He's just saying, judgment's coming. You're going to be overturned in 40 days. You hear no mention of him saying, hey, you need to turn from your sin. You need to turn from your evil. You need to turn back to God. He may have said that, but it's not recorded here. What we see, the second thing we see about God here is that God uses imperfect messengers. I think that's important. God uses imperfect messengers. You see, Jonah, he doesn't want to go. He's not excited to go, but he obeys. And Jonah doesn't even give the right message, yet God still uses him. How often have Christians been slow to share, slow to speak? to not tell somebody about the goodness of God and about our own brokenness and our need for a Savior because we're afraid we won't get the message perfectly right. We won't say it accurate enough. We won't say it in the right timing, the right tone. And we'll, we'll say it in a way that we're, we're nervous and a little anxious. So we say nothing. Jonah goes and he speaks. He doesn't speak a perfect message. It's not up to us to speak perfectly. God calls us to go and to declare the good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to reconcile us to God. That's the message to be upon our our lips and our tongues as we go throughout this world, as we live our days. But we have to realize it's not our job to save anybody. You cannot save somebody You cannot save somebody from the eternal consequence of being separated from God because of sin. You have no ability to do that. Only Jesus can. But what you can do is you can declare that message. You can scatter what we call gospel seed and let people hear about Jesus. And it's God's work to take that seed and make that seed grow. Think about planting. If any of you have ever done gardening, Do you make plants grow? You don't make plants grow. What do you do? You work the soil. The soil's hard. You get the soil soft. And then you put a seed in it. And you water it. And you pray that that seed will grow. But you can't make it grow. See, our job is to scatter seed. Our job is to work the hard soil. Our job is to put it in a position where that seed will grow. Even as we see these parents before us imagine these parents' great desires for their children to know Christ. But the reality is, is not a single parent can force their child to know Christ. As parents, what can we do? Work the soil. We get the soil tender and we scatter seed. We scatter seed. We live out the gospel before our children. That's what we're called to do. But don't think that God's going to use you when you get it all together. When you have every answer, you know everything. You've got it all perfectly put together. Now God will use me. No, God uses imperfect people, imperfect messengers. And he's the one who's perfect. He's the one who's holy. He's the one who will make the seed grow. So Jonah goes and he scatters this seed. And God's going to use him for change. Look at verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. Right there, this next section, its the greatest miracle that we see in this book. This city of thousands, tens of thousands of people living in this city, it says that they believed in God. The Ninevites, they were known for worshiping a god called Dagon. Dagon was half fish, half man. And they worshiped a goddess called Nosh. And these goddesses, they were the god and goddess of the ocean that's who they worshiped and God sends Jonah fresh out of the ocean fresh out of the belly of the whale to go and declare that they must turn or they'll be overthrown it says they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them they all begin to mourn and weep over their sin look at verse 6 The word reached the king of Nineveh. Now, I'm sure when Jonah went there, he's thinking, if God's in this, God will do something. But a citywide repentance, a repentance that even reached the most powerful man in the city, perhaps the most powerful man in that part of the world, the king, he repents. Third thing I want us to see about God is that God can reach anyone. Don't overlook that. There's times we don't believe that. There's times I don't believe that. There's times in our lives that we look and go, God couldn't reach that person. Their heart is too hard. They're too stubborn. They're too rebellious. They don't want anything to do with God. But God can reach anyone. Hey, there's times in my life that there's family members and friends that I know who don 't know the Lord i 've scattered seed i 've shared, but they don 't believe and there's times I have a hard time believing God. can you reach him in them? God can you really reach them and God can reach anyone He is all powerful he's almighty he 's all knowing and he can reach those he chooses to reach and here it says that the reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe. So the king would wear a robe. That was his splendor. That was his glory. Like, this is a big deal. The king wore it. Everybody's like, he is the king. And he removes the outward symbols of being king and humbles himself. He covers himself with sackcloth and set in ashes. One of the things I love about the Bible, the people in the Old Testament when they were sad, you knew it. Now in the culture where I come from, when people are sad, well they don't really show it. They'll still smile. You won't they, won't they won't look terrible. But in the Bible, when someone was having when someone died, when a family member died, when a friend died, when you were mourning, when you were grieving, you would rip your clothes, and you put ashes on your head, and people would look at you and be like, "You look terrible." And you say, exactly. I feel terrible. I'm mourning. I'm grieving. I'm in a terrible spot. And that's what this king does. He's mourning. He's grieving. He's not only repenting in his heart, he's given an outward symbol. I'm repenting. I'm turning. He's showing everyone. And there's something beautiful about that. You see, our faith in Christ is a very personal thing meaning Christ saves you he redeems you as an individual meaning you can't be saved because your parents are Christians or your friends are Christians or because you go to church no Christ saves you as an individual and you have a personal relationship with Christ that's why as Christians we grieve sin because it just wrecks havoc on our relationship with Jesus but our faith is not private Our faith is not meant to be hidden. It's meant to be shared, declared, seen as we live our lives. And here this king gives a visible reminder, I've repented and I'm turning. In verse 7, it says, He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Now, I find it interesting here that this is not just don't let the people not eat or drink. It's no animals. Nobody's going to eat or drink anything. We're not going to indulge our flesh. You see, we often don't see our sin because we pursue comforts. The comforts of this life, the indulgence of the flesh can keep us from seeing the sin in our life. you get hungry. You don't eat for a minute. How do you start to treat people? How do you start to talk to people? How do you you start to think about them? So he's saying, we're not going to eat or drink, man or beast. And then the second thing he says, we'll be covered in sackcloth. So everybody, even the animals, if you walked into Nineveh, you wouldn't see the predominant image of a pyramid of skulls, of a cruel people, if you walked into Nineveh this time, you would see a people covered in ashes, weeping and mourning and repenting, turning from their sin, turning from their wicked ways. It says, because here's what we see, the third thing, let them call out mightily to God. They're going to cry out to God. And the fourth thing, let everyone turn from his evil ways. Four things he calls them to do. Don't eat, put on sackcloth and ashes, call out to God, turn from evil. That's what repentance looks like. Turn from your sin, run to God. Publicly declare to others, hey, I'm turning from my sin. I'm running from it. There's power in telling other people that, hey, I'm going to turn from my sin. I recognize that I've been in sin over here and I want to run from it. I want to turn from it. There's power in that. That's exactly what they're doing. They're turning from their sin. This man Jonah had been scared to go to this city. Anybody who went to this city like Jonah did to declare the message, they end up impaled and killed on a pole. They end up being skinned alive. They end up something cruel happening to them. And Jonah was terrified, yet God was with him. He goes one day into the city and we see a city-wide repentance break out. That's a miracle. Only God can do that. Only God can bring this type of revival. Only God can make this happen. And God brings revival here. And here's what the king says in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Three times in that verse it speaks of God turning. God may turn, and then it says, and relent, that word relent, It's interesting. It's the same Hebrew word that gets translated as repent. It's most commonly translated as repent in the Old Testament. But here it's translated relent. In fact, in all the English Bibles I looked in, it's never translated as repent. But that's the idea of turning. That maybe God will turn. Because see, the idea, God doesn't need to repent. You and I, we need to repent We repent once, recognizing we're a sinner in need of a Savior. Christ redeems us and saves us. But then, Christian, know this. You live a lifestyle of repentance. When you see your sin, you repent. You confess, this is sin. And I want Jesus. He's better. I go to him. There's times as Christians, we're not very good at this especially in cultures that we come from that are non-confrontational and doesn't like to do this. We don't like to do this, but we go to a brother and sister and say, hey, I've sinned against God and against you. My sin has impacted you. That's repentance. God doesn't need to do that. He's perfect. He's holy. He has nothing to repent of. What is, why are they asking, uh, saying that God may repent here? It's because the turn that it's going to require for God to not judge these people is massive. These people know how wicked and cruel they are. They know their sin, and they know they deserve the judgment of God. Let me tell you, God's judgment is actually an act of mercy. It's an act of mercy. We don't like judgment. None of us like it. None of us like it when someone comes and confronts us with something or says something difficult. We all want to ignore it or minimize it or run from it rather than say, I recognize their sin or I recognize that what you're saying has some truth in it. We don't like that. But here, God is going to turn and go back to his people. He's going to bring his people back. Let's, let me, let's look at the next thing. One more thing we're going to see here. Verse 10. So they're hoping, God, will you relent of judgment? And as we talk about judgment, parents know this. Any good parent judges their kids at some point. That's part of being a parent. Now ask a parent, does any parent enjoy exercising judgment upon their children? Does any parent like that? I would think that I'd have to be a parent that's pretty twisted and needs some help. I don't enjoy judging my kids. I don't enjoy disciplining my kids. I don't want to do it, but here's what I see. You're headed the wrong way, and you're going to hurt if you keep going that way. It's going to bring pain, and you need to turn and go a different direction. So I'm going to bring a little judgment so that you may turn and go the other direction. I'm going to bring a little pain into your life because you're going the wrong way. It's an act of love. God's judgment is an act of love. Now, there are those who look at the Bible and say, you know, in the Old Testament, God is all about wrath. He's killing people every which way. Armies are being destroyed. Nations destroyed. God is so harsh in the Old Testament. Why isn't he gracious? And in the New Testament, you know, Jesus is all about love, peace, and happiness i tell you, that's a very sad misreading of Scripture. In the Old Testament, here's how God always works. God always works this way. And remember, the Old Testament is thousands of years. So God will say to a people, repent of your sin or judgment's coming. I love you. I'm telling you judgment's coming. Child, I'm telling you, if you do that, you will be punished. Judgment's coming and is soon. As anyone in the Old Testament repents, God relents. God holds off judgment. You'll see him hold off judgment for 70, 100, 200 years for people. That's how our God is. And in the New Testament, it's only written over 70 years. Very brief period of time. And Jesus, he's the one who speaks more of the reality of sin hell than anybody else Jesus loves us too much to not tell us if you are walking in sin it's going to lead to eternal separation from God in a place called hell none of us like that if I had the ability I would want to change some things I'm not God he is And in Scripture, Jesus says, if you don't repent and turn of your sin and come to Christ, you are headed for an eternal destiny apart from God in a place called hell. So no, when we look at Scripture, God is always a God full of grace. As soon as anyone repents, God is there to bring them and receive them with His great grace. So here in verse 10, the king has just said, who knows? Maybe God will relent. Verse 10, When God saw that they did not, they did how, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. Could be translated, God repented of the disaster. God didn't need to repent. Not in terms of turning from sin and going another direction. No, what God repented is, he turned from the judgment that they were going to receive. Nineveh, It'd be 150 years before God's judgment would come upon that nation. For 150 years, this nation would carry on. 150 years later, they'd be destroyed. They returned to the hardness of their sin and forgotten about God. That's why it's so important we continually invest in that next generation. But in verse 10, we see the fourth thing in your notes about God. God saves undeserving people God saves undeserving people that's each one of us none of us deserve God's grace the Ninevites they are evil they are wicked they are when you talk about bad they're really bad I mean like all of us would go these are some of the most evil people you could imagine they don't deserve God's grace but neither do you neither do I and God gives us his grace and mercy so here's what we've seen today. God gives second chances. We need to remember that. God uses imperfect messengers. God wants to use you as a part of his kingdom plan. God can reach anyone. There's no one so far that they can't be reached. And God saves undeserving people. Those that we think could never be saved, God saves them. The book of Jonah It's about a Gentile, it's about a Galilean prophet that was thought dead for three days and three nights, yet he lived, and he went to declare a message of repentance and grace to the Gentiles. And we worship a Galilean prophet who was thought dead for three days, yet he rose from the dead, and he lives to declare a message of repentance and grace to all who will believe, to Jew and Gentile alike. And that's the greatest message of all. Church, I pray if you haven't trusted in this great message of grace, that God would do what only He can do. All we can do is scatter seed, but God is one who will open your eyes to the truth, and we pray that He'll do that. Of His great grace and mercy through Christ. And to the church, many of you here, you begin to live life as if God can't really use you. Maybe you continually struggle with certain sin, feel like God can't use me. Know that God gives second chances, He uses imperfect people, and that He can reach anyone. It's our great joy and privilege to get to go and declare this message. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Your word is so good. Your word is such an amazing word to open and hear from. You speak to us, your people, through your word. So Lord, I know nothing I've said of myself is worthy of being heard. But the things that are from you, the things that are true of you, Lord, may they go into our heart, into our mind. May we be a a, a church of people that continually repent when we see our sin, not because we're seeking to focus on our sin and always be heavy, but because there's a great joy of walking with you. There's great freedom in walking with you, and we can't taste that freedom unless we turn from our sin. So help us to do that. Lord, do the hard work of revealing to each of us the sin that we struggle with and that keeps us from walking in fullness and joy with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.